This morning, we begin to steer into the final section of the story of Jairus, which we've been looking at for a few weeks now. And as we begin to journey into it, we begin to look at it through the lens of culture change. Now, since August, we've been talking quite a bit about culture. We've been chatting about culture. Um, it's become a bit of a buzzword. And obviously, in my house, um, because this has been something that we're really thinking and praying through, I've been talking about culture a lot to the extent that my wife told me if I mention the word culture one more time, she's going to rearrange the culture of my face. But <laughs> it is more than just a buzzword. It, it is something that we really believe that God is, is doing amongst us right now and something that he is speaking to us about. And so these verses that we begin to look at together become golden verses for us and really important verses as we allow God to speak into and bring explanation to what he is beginning to do. We're going to begin to look at it this week. We're going to begin to look at it next week as well. We, we spoke about how to change the culture of the church involves a change in the culture of our own souls. And so we're beginning to look at culture change from two perspectives. Today, we're beginning to look at it personally. Next week, we're going to begin to look at what actually happens when God begins to change a culture within a moment and within a situation. And hopefully that begins to bring a bit of understanding and explanation as to what he's doing and what we're experiencing and sensing both spiritually and physically. So let's jump into the verses that we've been at. We're reading from verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some leaders came from the house of Jairus, Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the, sick child's, uh, took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was around 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Our focus last week as we looked at these verses and arrived really on the verses at the beginning of our reading today, our focus last week was the moment that Jairus receives word that his daughter has died. And in that devastating moment, Jairus is faced with a choice. He has a choice to make because he has two different voices delivering two very different and very conflicting messages. One voice, the voice of the messengers tell him, don't bother the teacher anymore. The girl is gone. It's the end of the road. Give up. Leave it alone. The other voice, the voice of Jesus says, don't give up. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be made whole. In the midst of Jairus's personal crisis, he is faced with the task of making a decision and of having to make a choice. Which voice is he going to follow? The voice that says give up or the voice that says don't give up? Which voice is he going to follow and which person is he going to journey with from that point forward? Now, from our perspective, 
because we know how all of this pans out, because we've read the story together, because we know how it all pans out, this decision that he has to make seems quite black and white. He can either go home with the messengers and journey on in his grief, or he can go home with Jesus and see his grief completely transformed. Jairus doesn't see the bigger picture like we do. So for him, this decision that he has to make is a big decision to make. And on top of that, Jairus is in a place where decisions and normative functions would not be the expectation of him. When people suffer bereavement, we tend to come around people and support people and take pressures off and normative tasks and day-to-day stuff we step in to support and to do so that those who are grieving don't need to do that. But Jairus is in this moment where he has this big decision to make. And making big decisions in moments of crisis is really hard. And yet often, crisis moments tend to be accompanied by the need to make decisions and to make informed choices. In fact, often crisis moments are decisive moments, and that's what actually makes them defining moments. Because the decisions that we make in moments of crisis can often define the forward journey. In fact, they can shape and determine what the forward journey looks like. They can shape and determine the direction that the forward journey takes. And the decisions made in moments of crisis can actually impact the way that we emerge from the crisis as well as the shape and the condition that we exist with long after the crisis is over. Every crisis carries a choice. And every choice carries a consequence. And the choices that we make in crisis moments carve out the type of people that we become. They shape our character. But as well as that, they shape the culture that we then carry forward in our lives. If you think about it, if you look back in every crisis that you've faced so far, if you look back at those crisis moments, you will recognize that the crisis always brought with it a set of choices and a set of decisions that had to be made. And nine times out of ten, those choices would revolve around our characters and our conduct. They would have revolved around how you were going to behave and what you were going to do in the midst of the crisis. What you were going to do and how you were going to behave in order to navigate through the crisis. How you were going to behave and what you were going to do after the crisis was gone. Every storm that we face, every battle that we navigate, every crisis that we go through tends to shape inwardly and outwardly the way that we live and how we approach things going forward. Crisis shapes our conduct. But equally, we have to recognize that our souls are also impacted by crisis. The type of people that we become, the attitudes that we have, the way we treat others, our behavior, the way that we live, the way that we love, what we expect, how we trust, the level at which we interact with others, all of these things are shaped and defined by our experiences in life and none more so than the storms, battles, and crisis that we have to endure. Crisis shapes our character. And it's not just the crisis itself that has shaping characteristics. It's actually the many decisions that we have to make within crisis moments, both on a micro and on a macro level. The constant choices, the instinctive inward decisions that we have to make in those moments as part of our survival instinct that flow out of common sense or even at times are just conscious, deliberate and intentional options. These inward and outward choice moments, they have tremendous power to forever change and shape us 
for the good and also for the not so good. And if the choices that we make within crisis shape our character and shape our conduct, then what we have to realize is that the choices made within crisis actually shape the culture that we carry from the crisis moment onwards. And we need to recognize with that then that there are times that God has to restore the soul. There are times when he has to hit the factory reset button almost, and he restores the soul in order to repair the culture that the soul carries. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. And in the moments of his leadership, in the moments when he brings us intentionally and sometimes sovereignly to moments of rest and pause, within those moments he begins to work on the soul, a work of restoration, a work of refreshing and healing, of repair and reconditioning, a work that is all about restoring the you that has perhaps been lost behind all the bruises and the blemishes and the dents and the walls that we have constructed because of what we've been through. You see, our day-to-day living is marked by a series of decisions and choices. Every day in life, as we navigate through our day and through the contents that it holds, we make choices and we make decisions. Sometimes we make those choices consciously, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes unconsciously. But every choice and decision both flows out of the culture that we carry, but also it shapes or they shape the culture that we carry. And in moments of crisis and difficulty, what ordinarily seems like ordinary, simple, everyday choices, they become more magnified. They hold power to shape us more than ever before, which means that we need to learn how to intentionally, intentionally and purposely make good and wise choices in moments of crisis because they actually shape the culture that we carry for the rest of our days. And here's the thing. This isn't a science. We can't come up with three easy steps, all alliterated, which we obviously would be with the letter C because clearly today's sermon is brought to us by the letter C. It's not a science. However, what we do recognize from this passage is something really quite beautiful and stunning. And that is that in moments when crisis creates choices, God is already at work within those crisis moments, calling out the choice that we should make. You see, he guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the darkest valley, we do not fear because he's with us and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. Even in dark valleys, even in crisis moments of life, God is there and he is providing leadership and guidance as well as comfort. He shepherds us in those moments. So when crisis carries choices, we need to pause and we need to look for him and we need to find him and we need to connect with him and connect with what he's doing and allow his influence to shape the choice that we have to make and therefore the culture that we will carry from that moment onward. Because he is the God who sees the beginning from the end. So even though we don't know how this crisis is going to pan out, he does. 
which means he knows the right choice that we should make that is both good for us and is in line with the destination that this crisis leads to. And on top of all of that, he is also the God who works in every situation for the good of those who love him. He is at work in the situation. He is working for our good. So if we find him and we follow what he is doing, we will find the good that is going to come out of the circumstance. And we will find the outcome, the choice, and the decision that leads us to that which is good for us. Now, we see all of this with Jairus. God has set the whole journey He was working within the moment to shape the choice that Jairus had to make within his crisis. Jairus, if you remember, was a conservative Orthodox synagogue leader who had changed his position on Jesus. And he came into the presence of Jesus and he he begged him to act within the crisis that was unfolding in his world. His daughter, his only daughter, his daughter of just 12 years old, was sick and she was dying. And he begs Jesus to come with him. And Jesus agrees to go with Jairus to help his daughter. And en route, they are interrupted. As this woman who had been suffering with this incurable disease comes and touches the edge of his garment and is instantly healed. Now Jairus gets a front row seat on this moment. Jesus pauses and the attention of the crowd is drawn to this woman who comes before him and tells the story of what happened to her how she was before she connected with Jesus. The pain, the discomfort, the rejection, the shame. What happened when she connected with Jesus? The power, the feeling, the experience, the encounter. What happened as the result of the encounter? The healing, the transformation, the joy. Jairus hears all of this, what happened before, what her life was like, what happened when she connected with Jesus, what happened as a result of connecting with Jesus. Jairus hears all of this and he sees it all right before him and therefore he experiences the healing of this woman. As she tells her stories, he sees it right in front of him, the transformation, the joy, the change, the wholeness, the, 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 the miracle. It's almost as though he's experiencing her healing for himself. He feels the emotions that she expresses as she journeys them through our story. He experiences the transformation that she shares and that Jesus honors and blesses to be true. And he feels faith rising in him, the faith that rose in this woman in the first place, that this is Jesus, this is who he is, this is what he does. Then suddenly in this moment, this man becomes confident of Christ. Can we see how what seems like an inconvenience is actually God shaping Jairus? Shaping the culture that he's carrying in his soul. This is discipleship. And discipleship isn't all linear and all in neat little rows. Sometimes that which we view as inconveniences is actually what God uses to disciple us and to shape the culture that we carry. And Jairus is in this moment of intense discipleship. It's discipleship on fast forward As in this instant, Jairus begins to reject preconceived judgments on Jesus. He rejects previously formed opinions on him. And he begins to develop and form brand new opinions on him right there in that moment. His heart has been challenged. His heart has been changed. And his heart has been challenged and changed at a great speed simply by being in Jesus' company and being in Jesus' presence. The culture of his heart has been transformed. The culture out of which he's about to make a choice in the midst of his crisis. 
God is shaping that choice by showing him firsthand, up close and personal, what Jesus can do and who Jesus really is. God is shaping that choice by showing Jairus up close and personal how Jesus can take an end-of-the-road situation when someone has given up on everything else, how he can take an end-of-the-road situation and turn it around completely. God sets up within Jairus' circumstances and Jairus' situation, he sets up all that he needs to guide the choice that he's about to make in the moment of crisis. There is... No doubt that what Jairus sees and what he hears from the woman in the center of the crowd is what shapes his decision to journey on with Jesus to his girl instead of following the messengers deeper into grief. And as if that wasn't enough, because it would be, seeing that right in front of you, having faith build in you in that moment, that would be enough. But as if that wasn't enough, Jesus is even more direct. And in fact, he's even more directive He speaks to Jairus. It says there in verse 36, overhearing what they had said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Jairus has a choice to make. And as he is faced with that choice, as the options are running through his mind and his emotions are clouding his judgment, as he has this choice to make and the options are before him, Jesus reveals his voice and he speaks into the decision before him. He sends his word into the crisis and he sends his word into the crisis to shape the choice that had to be made. And what I love about this is that Jairus didn't instigate the response from Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus, Jesus, what should I do here? He doesn't petition him and beseech him. He doesn't rip his clothes in half and put sackcloth and ashes on him and fall at his feet and berate Jesus for the latest prophetic revelation on this moment. But if you look at how Mark describes it, it says, overhearing what they said, overhearing the messengers, Overhearing them saying, don't bother the teacher anymore. It's the end of the road. The girl's dead. Just give up. Overhearing that, Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus provided an unsolicited response. He spoke before Jairus asked. He released his word into the crisis to shape the choice that Jairus had to make. In fact, the voice of Jesus instructs the culture that Jairus is to carry in the crisis. He tells him, I don't want you to carry fear, but I want you to carry faith. In decision-making moments, in moments of crisis, the steps that we've just outlined there serve as really good anchors for our soul. There is no science to this stuff, to the choices that we have to make, but there are some really good anchors and guides that we can use that come from this passage. And the first thing is that in moments of crisis, when a decision and a choice has to be made, recognizing that those choices can forever shape us for the rest of our days, one of the first things that we need to do is we need to pause and look and see what is and what has God been doing. Because the God who works in all circumstances for the good of those who love him is already at work in this circumstance. And he's already been at work in the circumstances leading up to this crisis. 
He's been putting things in place. He's been moving pieces around. He's been setting up conversations. He's been bringing influences into position, releasing ministry, manifesting his reality in ways that are intended to shape the choice that we have to make within this crisis. To follow the favor, to recognize what he has already been doing and to choose to come into alignment with that is to journey into the good that he is outworking within that moment. But the second thing that we need to do is that we need to pause to hear his voice. You see, when the storm hits and the chaos descends and the curveball waxes square between the eyes, we can be really good at calling out to him, really good at beseeching him, really good at shouting at him even, but we're not always so good at listening to him. Intentionally pausing to listen Intentionally stopping to hear is critical because before we've even asked, he's already begun to speak into the crisis. Before we even come and lifted our eyes and opened our ears, he's already released his word into that moment. He's already speaking, calling out his plan and his purpose. And he's already instructing the culture that we have to carry within that moment. And from that moment. And here's the thing. It's a life rule that we can take with God. And that is that his activity always backs up what his voice is declaring. And his voice always confirms what his hand is doing. The front row seat on this woman's testimony of healing. It built faith in Jairus. And if you look at the statement from Jesus, faith was what Jesus told Jairus to have. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of doubt, when there's choices before us, when emotions are clouding our judgment, when everything seems so difficult, God actually puts in place in our lives a double dunter of confirmation that affirms the way that we should go. His activity confirms what his voice is declaring and his voice reveals what his hand is doing. When we're not sure what is crazy, unrealistic faith and what is actually the right step that God is calling us to hold in difficult moments, because let's be honest, there's times when as Christians we need a dose of reality and we need to exist in situations and realize, yes, that is what God is able to do, but is that what he is going to do? Yes, there's times we need to come and say, yes, we believe that God is able to accomplish that and he's more than capable of doing that, but does that mean that that is what he's going to do right now? In the moments when we need to discern what is actually having crazy ridiculous faith and what is actually having crazy righteous faith, when we need to know this, the position that God is calling us to hold, we just need to pause and look around us and see what is he doing? And what has he been doing? What is he saying? And what has he been saying? Because God is already speaking into that moment. He is already at work in that moment. So when we find him and we tune to him, we find the right thing for that moment. In his crisis, Jairus is faced with a choice. Does he follow the voice of the messengers and journey with them home to his grief-stricken family? Or does he follow the voice of Jesus and carry the presence of Christ home to his grief-stricken family. He has a choice. It's a really simple choice. But one choice carries the presence of Christ and unleashes a miracle. 
and the other choice misses out on the purpose of God entirely. Titus makes his choice. He chooses to continue his journey with Christ, and this is where we pick the story up from as we bring it into land. It says in verse 37, Jesus didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. As Jesus journeys to the home of Jairus, he doesn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, and we'll come to that next week in more detail. But when he arrived at the house, what he is met with is what is described as a commotion. The commotion that greeted Jesus was caused by people greeting. It was caused by people wailing and crying loudly, the scripture says. Now we contrast that moment with the verses we looked at when we started this journey a couple of weeks ago. The whole journey of Jairus opened with Jesus arriving to a crowd. And Luke says of the crowd, now when Jesus returned and a crowd welcomed him, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him because they were all expecting him. At the beginning of this process, Jesus arrived in a setting to be greeted by a crowd that was welcoming and expectant. The culture that this crowd carried and the culture that this crowd created was one that was welcoming and it was one of expectancy. It was a positive culture, a positive culture that created the environment and the conditions for the kingdom to manifest. But as Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, he is again greeted by a crowd and this crowd also carry and create a culture but unlike the crowd at the shore, the crowd at the house carry a culture that is anything but positive. In fact, what we're told greeted Jesus was a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now, when we understand the context, it doesn't seem out of place. A little girl has just died. There are people present in that moment crying, weeping, wailing, what is described to us here is people mourning. But in actual fact, what is described to us here is people who are professional mourners. See, in New Testament times, it was common practice that upon the loss of a loved one, the family would actually employ people. They would hire people in to weep and to wail. They were called professional mourners. And it's not a practice that takes place in Scotland today. However, if it were, I knew a few people that would be experts at the job. But professional mourners were women within a community who were always ready at hand to be hired in to mourn and cry at the passing of a loved one. And the idea was that whenever anyone came to the house of the bereaved to visit and to pay their respect, that these women would begin to weep and wail loudly. And they did so for two reasons. Firstly, they did it to show how special this person was. The idea was that the level of grief expressed reflected the level of which this person had been loved and respected. So the more grief communicated more love, more respect. But secondly, they wept and they wailed to allow any visitors to the house to unite their tears to those of the bereaved. See, what professional mourners would do is that they would create a culture of grief. Meaning that when someone stepped into that moment, they would connect with that culture and they would begin 
to grieve. And one of the ways that professional mourners did this is that they would begin, when folk arrived at the house, they begin this lamentation. They would either begin to shout or to sing, beatbox, who knows. They begin to this lamentation about the deceased that would move the heart of the person visiting. But as well as that, oftentimes in their dirge, they would also include the name of the deceased or recently deceased relatives of those who were visiting. Could you imagine going to pay your respects to Jimmy and all these people start talking about how you lost Senga just a few months ago? It would be a soul-destroying experience. But that's what they did. And, and these women, being women from the community, meant that they were familiar with people's families and they were familiar with people's family history. And so they would use their local knowledge to sing lamentations that would touch the heart and would touch the heart of those visiting and would really genuinely move them to a place of grief and allow them to express their sympathy and to connect with the grieving family and to weep alongside them. In other words, these people created a culture of grief. And the culture that they created ruled and dictated emotions and behavior within that moment. And the passage says that Jesus went in and he said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. There's quite a few points that we could pull out here, but we're going to land more on them next week. And the first thing that we see is that when Jesus arrives at Jairus' gaff, that which he sees is a commotion. The dictionary definition of the word commotion is a state of confused and noisy disturbance. It's interesting that Jesus refers to the sights and sounds of professional mourners as a disturbance. It just seems natural that they would be there and natural that that would be happening given what has taken place. But Jesus, as he sees it, says it's a disturbance. And the question that comes to mind is this, well, what are they disturbing? Because what they're doing seems fitting, not disturbing. So what are they disturbing? Well, the culture of grief that they were creating was disturbing the plan and purpose of God for that situation and for that moment. People were coming in contact with these women and they were immediately connecting with death and mourning, whereas Jesus' plan and what he planned to bring to that was completely contrary to that. His plan was to release life. The culture that the presence of these people created was contrary to and was disturbing the plan and purpose of God for this man and for this family. So Jesus removed that which facilitated the wrong culture. Now, this is not the first time we see Jesus doing this kind of thing. If you remember when Jesus entered the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers and those selling doves and he drove the traders out of the temple and he did all of this citing that they were creating the wrong culture in his house. He says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a culture that is not that. You've made it a den of thieves and of iniquity. Here in this passage, we see Jesus changing culture. And we look at it to see what he does and what happens when he does. And this is why it's important for us because Jesus is changing our culture. And as we begin to see what he's doing, it almost begins to make sense some of the stuff that we're seeing and some of the stuff that we're experiencing as a church. And when Jesus begins to transform culture, he often removes that which and those who facilitate the wrong culture in order to make room for that which he wants to put in place. That's what we see here. 
Before we jump into that in great detail, which we're going to do, as I say, next week. But we are challenged personally in a couple of ways as we look at this. And we're challenged by this question. What culture do we carry that people connect with when they're in our presence? These women, through their actions and their deeds and their speech, they created a specific culture of grief wherever they turned up and whenever they turned up. So what culture does our actions, our speech, and our deeds cultivate? When we walk into a room, what culture walks into the room with us? What's the tone? What's the flavor? What's the experience that is found when people are in our presence? Is it fun or is it foul? Is it positive and encouraging or is it negative and crippling? Is it real or is it pretense? Is it truthful and honoring or is it gossip and embellishment? Is it edifying or is it critical? Is it refreshing or is it energy sapping? Is it life-giving or is it soul-destroying? What do people encounter when they encounter you? And please, as I poise that question so directly, it's a question that I've been battling with for a long time now myself. The scripture calls us to walk as Jesus walked, to be imitators of Christ, to be his body, his representatives on the earth, which means that we should carry the very culture of heaven in our lives. Whenever people encountered Jesus, whenever they were in contact with his actions, his speech, his presence, people always encountered his kingdom. We are to be people that carry the culture of the kingdom, that when we walk into the room, that when we turn up, that which people connect with as they connect with us is nothing short of heaven. We need to be a people that carry a culture that allows God to move and doesn't hinder him. These women carried a culture that hindered the move of God in that moment, so Jesus had to remove it. Let's never be a people that carry a culture that stop the kingdom of God entering moments and situations. But let's be a people that carry a culture that facilitate his plans within moments, gatherings, and settings. However, the second thought from this is that in recognizing that people carry culture and people create culture, are there people in our lives whose presence create a culture that is disturbing the plan and the purpose of God for us? The culture that the presence of these mourners created was disturbing the plan and the purpose of God for this man and his family. Are there people whose presence cultivate a culture that disturbs the purpose of God for us and for our families? Those who, when within their presence, we always leave feeling negative or thinking negatively. Those who are always so critical, make us think and speak in criticism of others. Those who, when we've been in their company for a period of time, we end up leaving feeling drained or, or down or downcast or anxious or upset. You see, if that's the dynamics that we encounter when we encounter them, then that means that is what they carry. That is the culture that is over that, their lives. And what it also suggests to us then is that we need to surround ourselves with people who carry the culture that we ourselves want to carry. So let's turn the questions on their head. Who is it that is life-giving? Who are those who are encouraging, who are positive, those who are fun and refreshing and real, those who are edifying to be with? Surround yourself with those people 
Because the culture they carry is healthy and edifying and life-giving. The culture they create and carry is good for you and it's good for me. They carry the very culture that we ourselves should seek to carry. Now, it's interesting to note that before Jesus performed the miracle and raised the girl from the dead, the first thing he did was he put the mourners out. He removed the culture of death and mourning because it was contrary and contradictory to the culture that he was releasing, which was life and joy. And we've got to be careful to remove from our lives everything and not just everyone who cultivates their own culture in our lives. Please, what I'm not saying here today is that we should not be friends with non-believers or that we should start dissing people and cutting friends off. Actually, what we need to look at is when we identify those that maybe carry their own culture and, and cultivate their own culture for us is what is the thing in us that their presence triggers? What is the thing in us that their presence and their culture feeds? This is called holiness. It's dealing with habits, thought processes, actions, behaviors, choices, speeches about being real and dealing with that which we recognize as cultivating their own culture in our lives. Because the miraculous, the supernatural, the manifestations of God are only found in the company of those who function and journey with a life-giving culture. Life. Real life. The life of God is found with those who carry and create a life-giving culture wherever they go. So as we finish this, let's ask this question. What would that look like? What would it look like to create a church, a hub, an epicenter, where each week and throughout the week, we are discipled to be transformed more and more into his life? A place where each week we are permitted and we release permission to be real, to be honest, to be intentional before God and with each other about who we are. What would it look like to create a church that resources a life-giving culture in each and every one of us? What would it look like then for us to leave our gatherings and leave our discipleship moments so transformed by the very life of God that we intentionally enter each moment and circumstance of our day-to-day lives carrying a life-giving culture? Think of what it would look like. Think of the transformation that could take place. Think of the opportunities for the breath of God to be found within moments and circumstances when his people just seek to carry a life-giving culture with them. How would it, amazing would it be if each time we gathered, we were so real and so honest and so vulnerable with God and each other that we were resourced with the very culture of heaven and carried a life-giving culture to the city of Glasgow and beyond just by turning up day to day in our everyday moments. The results could be massive. God is seeking to change the culture of our lives in order to change the culture of our church in order to change the culture of our city. He is beginning that process. And as we look at the story of Jairus, it, it, seems, it seems like a lot of this culture change hangs on permission. 
As Jesus comes into this moment and seeks to release a life-giving culture, the first thing that he does is he removes that which is facilitating the wrong culture in order to release the right one. And you can bet that in that moment when Jesus turns up and he says, you, 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 you all need to go. When he turns around and he goes, this isn't working for me, this is not working for me, you need to leave. When, when he turns and he, he puts the mourners out, the scripture says he put them out. You can bet that in that moment when he says, you all need to go, that every eye would have turned to Jairus with that unspoken word of, do you want us to go or do you want us to stay? Because this isn't his house, this is your house. You can bet that in that moment when he said to the mourners, you need to leave now, that the mourners would have looked to Jairus and say, he doesn't pay our wages, you do. Do you want us to stay? Or do you want us to go? And Jairus then would have had to make a choice. A choice to reject culture change or to embrace culture change. And that embracing the culture change involved him releasing some stuff, letting go of some stuff. What these women were doing, what was happening in the house with the people being present, that was the social norm, that was the culture of the day, that was the, what was expected to happen within these moments. But he had to make a decision to let go of the norm and to let go of the expectations and to get, let go of the ordinary and the normal and the routine and the ritual of those moments. And he let it go not knowing what was on the other side. He had no idea what Jesus was about to do. He had no idea what would happen as a result of that. And do you know what? When we come to culture change within our lives and within our church, it involves permission. It involves us permitting the release of that which isn't right to receive that which is. It involves a choice. Do we embrace culture change? Or do we reject it? To embrace it means to let go and lay down of the norm, the regular, the routine, the social norms that are normally dictated, the way that things have always been, the way that we always do these things. All of that has to be released. And we don't know what's on the other side of this. We don't know what Jesus is about to do. But the only way that we can step into that is to bring our yes to him and be willing to surrender to him and say, change the culture of me. Change the culture of my heart. This is our house. And he is calling to us and we have the choice. We can embrace the culture change that he's bringing to our lives or we can reject it. We need to come and we need to give him that permission. The same is true for the church and we say this often and it's not rhetoric. The pastor, the staff team, the deacons, the denomination, the regional leader, they don't permission, we don't permission what happens here because I'm not the church we are the church every single one of us we are the gatekeepers of this church 
We lift up the doors that the King of glory may come in. We lower the doors to keep stuff out. We together are the church. In Glasgow, we have a choice to make. It's a very real choice. It's heavy. I'm sorry. But he wants to bring culture change. And we have a choice to either reject it or embrace it. But embracing it Embracing it, not knowing what it's going to look like on the other side, embracing it does mean that some things need to shift. We need to let go of the norm, the has-been, the way that things are always done, the social norms, the expectations. We need to lay all of it down. Say, Jesus, this is your house. This is your fig tree. Come and tend to it. Come and bring fruit from it. We give you permission, not that you need it, because you're God, but we do it to come into alignment with you and to say, have your way. Come and change the culture of our house.